as we take antibiotics out of uh, prophylactic antibiotics or growth promoting antibiotics out of the feed, um, we recognize that that um, allows for more uh, variation in the microbiome and more sudden changes in the microbiome. And, and often it's not the, the fact that a particular bacterial species is present or not present in the gut. It's when are the conditions favorable for that particular species to, to proliferate and grow and, and start causing problems. So, um, you know, it's really brought into focus how important the gut is as an immune organ. And if, if we think about it, um, you know, it's really the largest point of contact with the outside environment. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AB Vista, offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like HYD to next-generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for today's episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us is our guest, Dr. Doug Corver. Dr. Corver completed his undergraduate degree at the University of Saskatchewan. He went on to complete his master's at the University of Delaware and his PhD from the University of California, Davis. He is currently a professor of poultry nutrition in the Agricultural Food and Nutrition Science Department at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. In addition to practical research on feedstuff quality and the evaluation of dietary supplements, in poultry diets, Dr. Corver's work focuses on interactions between nutrition and immune function, as well as bone development in both broilers and layers. Dr. Corver also teaches animal nutrition courses at undergraduate and graduate levels, ranging from introduction to animal nutrition all the way up to advanced nutrition and metabolism. He has authored or co-authored over 75 peer-reviewed articles and 14 book chapters. In 2021, he was named a fellow of the Poultry Science Association. He is currently part of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee to revise and update the 1994 nutrient requirements of poultry. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show, Dr. Corver. Thank you, Kate. I'm happy to be here. How are you doing today? Very good. Good, good. Well, before we begin talking a little bit about your research, could you tell us the story of how you came to be a professor at the University of Alberta? Sure. Um, I've always had an interest in, in animals and in particular birds. Uh, and so as a high school student and, and even before, I uh, had an eye on a veterinary career. Uh, I went to university with that in mind and um, 
let's just say my uh, first couple of years were not stellar academically. Uh, and so that uh, kind of took me out of the running for being competitive. But uh, as I as I started to figure things out academically, uh, I also had a chance to work uh, for the poultry unit at the University of Saskatchewan. And so I really had an opportunity to uh, get a lot more hands-on experience working with poultry. Uh, I had a uh, an opportunity to do a small research project as an undergrad, and I really enjoyed that. And so um, the uh, uh, the career goals changed. Uh, I decided that uh, I'd look at uh, doing a master's degree in poultry nutrition, uh, which I did at the University of Delaware. And I really enjoyed that. And then I had an opportunity to do a PhD in California with Kirk Glazing. And so um, by that time, you know, I, I was really uh, invested in it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I saw um, lots of opportunities for uh, uh, for the future. And so um, I wouldn't say I set out to to become a professor, but uh, certainly the, the doors opened up along the way and, and it's been a uh, it's been a fun ride. Mm-hmm. I would say that pre-vet transition into you know, more poultry industry, poultry nutrition is a pretty common career path that we hear a lot. I think so, yes. Yeah. A lot of us grow up loving animals and uh, don't really know anything else as a career other than being a veterinarian, and there's so much more out there. Well, and I see that a lot in the students that I teach as well, is they, they come in thinking they want to be vets, and then as they get exposed to, to more agriculture in general, and um, in my field in uh, poultry particularly, um, they realize that there's a lot of interesting things that they can do that, um, you know, even with a veterinary degree, they wouldn't be able to do or, um, yeah, there's opportunities that they wouldn't necessarily have expected coming into it. Absolutely. So throughout your career, was there any time that you can think of where you thought, why am I doing this? <laughs> and if so, what made you keep going? Uh, usually around grant writing season. So, uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's always an interesting process, but uh, you know, it it usually um, the grant deadlines are never at a convenient time, and so you're always trying to juggle a few different things uh, all at once. So, um, I wouldn't say that though that that's uh, something that um, you know I, I question why am I doing this? I, I it's it's part of the job, and um, yeah, it's it's just uh, one of those things that you have to get through, and then you know, hopefully, when your grants are successful, then you can do the fun stuff. So. Yeah. It's a long wait for the payoff on those too. I think that makes it even harder that sometimes it takes a while to hear back. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if you can think back over the last 10 or so years, is there anything that you know now that you wish you had known then? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and maybe it's not even just the, the last 10 years, but uh, one of the things that I would encourage anybody in the poultry field uh, is to look for opportunities to to get to know people, to collaborate. Um, collaborations outside of your institution uh, have really, uh, in my case, uh, have really picked up over the last 10 years. Um, and uh, it, in large part, it's because I think it is a fairly small community, the poultry nutrition community. We, you know, we feed billions of birds around the world, but there's, there's a really a fairly small group of, of people that um, are, are doing the kinds of work that, that we do. Uh, and so um, scientific meetings and industry meetings are a great chance to get to know people. And uh, just through chance meeting in, meetings in hallways, you, you strike up a conversation and you realize that there's a common interest. And um, so that 
Yeah, that's an encouragement that I would give to people um, starting in their careers. Look for those external collaborations. Great to collaborate within an institution and important. And um, those are the people you're going to work with day to day. But uh, yeah, it's there's a world of opportunities if if you're um, interacting with people uh, across the country and across the world. Mm-hmm. Definitely looking at you know the history of your publications and all of the presentations and conferences that you've been involved with. I mean. You must have made so many different connections with people across the industry, and and that's so important. Yeah. And um, looking forward, you know, is, is there anything on the horizon that you're excited about career wise? Yeah. So um, one of the things that's happened over the years is as I've developed more of these these connections, uh, I've been invited to more and more conferences, uh, giving industry talks, uh, and so I'm uh, about to embark in a bit of a change in my career. So I'm uh, I'm cutting back my time at the University of Alberta. I'll still be there uh, part time, but uh, I'm building up a consulting business, and so I'll be um, looking to interact with uh, ingredient suppliers and and uh, poultry companies. Primarily looking at um, I still I still see myself as a teacher. So. A lot of what I want to do is is taking the technical and scientific information that's that's available and translating that to the end user. So putting it in uh, in context, uh, gathering information from broad sources, and and trying to focus on what uh, the the end user will need to know in order to make their operation successful. That's so exciting! Uh, congratulations on that that upcoming change. Of course, you know. Everyone is is glad to have had you at the university, but also for you to be able to get out and share that knowledge uh, across the industry and and with folks on the feed additive side, you know, it's definitely always good to have you know a broader range of knowledge applied across all of these areas. And I, I know people will be very fortunate to have your help in that regard. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to it because I'll still have a, a relationship with the University of Alberta, so I'll still do a little bit of teaching at the undergraduate level. Uh, and I'll have my research program, so I'll still be generating new knowledge and hopefully staying relevant to the industry in that way as well. That's great. What a great way to bridge that gap between industry and academia to kind of you know have connections in both. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, sounds really fun. So as far as your research is concerned, what would you say the, the core mission of your research program is? Uh, if I had to sum it up, I'd say um, using basic science to answer practical questions for industry. That's that's interesting. Basic science gets a little bit of a bad rap at, in the industry. I'm sure you're aware of that. I, I think a lot of people maybe misunderstand the value of it as building up to something that can be applied practically and that we can't have applied and practical solutions for industry without the basic research behind it to to hold it up as a foundation. Yeah, and there's there's always a continuum. You know, there's there there's basic science from the standpoint of just discovery and hypothesis driven research, and and you know, finding out more about the biology of the birds. And you know, mm-hmm. you know as well as I do that those birds are changing all the time. So the things that we 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 think we have a good handle on now um, might be a little bit different in in ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the problems that we're faced with in ten years are going to be different. And so the more we understand about the biology of the bird the better off we will be or the better place we'll be in order to answer those questions more efficiently for industry. So turning that into uh, a practical application. So That makes sense. That's a good point. Also, the technology that we have available to conduct research is constantly changing. And I think applying some of these more novel you know, molecular uh, techniques 
to poultry is really going to give us the answers to a lot of these questions that are, you know, right now so complicated that we can't possibly answer them from just a practical and applied side. Exactly. And specifically, I know one of your major areas of interest is the interaction between nutrition and the immune system and the gut microbiome. Talk about complicated. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in in that regard, um, I'm I'm smart enough to recognize my limitations, <laughs> and uh, it's it's really been through collaborations with um, some of the the microbiome researchers that we have at the University of Alberta, and, and collaborations elsewhere. And so, um, you know, when I talk about taking fundamental research and answering basic questions, it it doesn't always have to be an individual. Um, and I think, you know, getting back to my conversations about international collaborations is, uh, you know, we can we can have more than one set of eyes and more than one um, set of expertise uh, to answer a question. And we can leverage that power of collaborative research. So, um, again, the, you know, the, the techniques in the in microbiome uh, analysis are changing so rapidly. It's 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 hard to keep up if you're not doing it all the time. But uh over the years, I've developed some really good uh, collaborations with people that that have that equipment and have that uh, that knowledge and, and expertise, and so it's been a, a fruitful collaboration. I think. Yeah, I, I can see that looking at some of the publications coming out of your lab and, and collaborating labs. Um, could you tell our audience just some kind of basic background information about what you mean by the interaction of the immune system, the gut, the gut microbiome? Because I think when we say immune system. The gut is not something that typically comes to mind. You might think about the thymus and the bursa, bone marrow in mammals. Yeah, and I think that's really the the importance of the gut microbiome is really coming into focus, particularly with the removal of growth promoting antibiotics in uh, in many countries. It's already legislated. In in many other countries where it's not legislated, the industry is still working towards that for for various reasons: consumer pressure and and pressure from uh, large purchasers like the the fast food restaurants, um, and so when we remove a tool that has been very effective, and without getting into the discussions about whether we should or shouldn't or what have you, the reality is we're moving away from antibiotics. And is as it? we take antibiotics out of uh, prophylactic antibiotics or growth promoting antibiotics out of the feed, um, we recognize that that. Um, allows for more uh, variation in the microbiome and more sudden changes in the microbiome. And, and often it's not the, the fact that a particular bacterial species is present or not present in the gut. It's when are the conditions favorable for that particular species to, to proliferate and grow and, and start causing problems. So, um, you know, it's really brought into focus how important the gut is as an immune organ. And if, if we think about it, um, you know, it's really the largest point of contact with the outside environment. And there's some debate whether it's the lungs or the uh, the intestinal tract, but it's certainly a, a, a major point of contact with the outside environment. And that's what the immune system does in surveillance mode is it, it keeps an eye on what are the contacts with the outside environment. And so, yes, the thymus and the bursa and, and um, various other lymphoid tissues and cells are, are important. Um, but one of the major points of contact for disease is, in fact, uh, the gut, and particularly for disease that's going to uh, reduce growth performance and efficiency. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So it would follow then that we can impact the immune system through the gut, through nutrition or feed. 
Um, can you think of any examples that come to mind of ways in which we impact the immune system through the feed? Yeah, sure. So there's there's really, in my mind, a couple of different levels. So the first level is just uh, preventing interaction between potential pathogens and and the gut. And without getting into, you know, a list of, of various approaches and, and products, um, if we can if we can prevent pathogens from attaching to the gut wall, um, the pathogens need to be resident in order to cause problems. And so if we can do things to prevent their their attachment, the pathogens, if they're present, will just be washed through the with the the digestive and, and excreted. Um, if we can, uh, if the the pathogens have established um, a residency in the gut, and we can prevent proliferation, um, that's going to minimize the interaction, the activation of of the local immune response, and and potentially a, a systemic response. So, um, from my the way I view things is the first level is just minimize or prevent as much as possible that unnecessary activation of the immune system. Um, and I say unnecessary because often the, the things that cause an immune response are not necessarily pathogenic. They're just unusual or changes or uh, unexpected by the immune system. Um, and of course, it's important to have a strong immunological response when there are pathogens present. So if we can reduce the presence of pathogens, if we can reduce the unnecessary um, stimulations of the inflammatory response, we can, uh, we can maintain performance in that way. The second level is actually within the tissues of the bird. So I always tell my students that uh, the, the lumen of the gut is actually outside of the bird. It's not part of the bird. Um, but when we look at the tissues, there are cases where there's translocation of pathogens into the tissues uh, into the bloodstream or into the, the gut tissues, or um, if we look at um, um, joint problems, it's often gut bacteria that have translocated and ended up in the joint. So in that case, then we look at nutrition uh, to modulate the, the immune response and, and in, in one hand, uh, reduce the systemic inflammation that reduces performance, but also have a strong local uh, and targeted response to that particular pathogen. And so, um, again, there's a number of nutrients um, that that we've looked at over the years, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, beta-glucans, um, uh, trace minerals, and so on, that uh, we can use to, to nudge the immune system in the direction that we want it to go. And so, when we use those two things together, I think that's the most effective. Um, minimize Minimize the stimulation of the immune system that isn't productive or isn't uh, protective for the animal. And then when there is translocation or there is an actual insult, the ability to quickly and rapidly and effectively deal with it so that the, the nutrients are not being diverted away from growth in order to support an extended um, period of high immune response. Hmm. So it's kind of a Goldilocks situation. You don't want too little immune response and you don't want too much. Yeah, and and so it's it's like having a, a mean old dog on your porch. You know, you don't want them chasing down the neighborhood kids all the time, but you you want them there to uh, uh, when it's necessary. <laughs> I like that. I noticed you said that not just pathogens are are stimulating the gut immune response. Um, that, I was wondering if you could expand on that. I always so wonder we'll, when we're least cost formulating diets, 
you know, the, the dollars are saying, let ingredients come in and out of the diet for whatever makes the most sense economically. I, think. I have to wonder, do you think that it negatively impacts the bird or causes an immune response to have that bird see an ever-shifting profile of ingredients in the feed or to be introduced to new ingredients? Yeah, so so the the impact of those changing ingredients is often um, related to the impact that it, it it has on providing substrate to the microbiome. Mm. Um, so especially in broiler chickens, we have a short-lived bird. We have a naive digestive tract in terms of the microbiome that really hasn't reached a stable, mature uh, point by the time that these birds are processed, particularly if we're dealing with a smaller bird market. Um, and so what happens is the, the, the microbiome, the, the microbes are still sorting themselves out. Um, so um, first, the first bacteria species in a particular niche are not necessarily the ones that are going to be most adapted to that niche. And so they might be there first, but then something else comes along that's more suited and they get outcompeted. And that, so it takes a while for a stable, mature microflora to, to develop. Um, and so when we're, when we're constantly changing uh, the, the ingredients, uh, we run the risk that now we're creating a new environment where different microbes might be better suited for a particular ecological niche in the gut. And so we really don't develop that, um, that stable microflora as quickly. And, and as I said, even in, you know, in, in, uh, in smaller broilers, they probably haven't even reached that point yet, even okay. even in the best case scenarios. So, you know, the, the, it's a it's a combination of different things. So, um, it's it's creating conditions where uh, a stable microflora or as stable as possible, given the age of the birds, can be achieved as as quickly as possible. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about maybe the timeline, for example, in broilers of how the microflora develops from you know the the newly hatched chick up to at what point is it typically a stable microflora? That's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, we, It probably depends on a lot of factors. Yeah, it, it does. And so, um, you know, one of the things, uh, without putting a, a specific timeline on it, we, if we start from, uh, if we start from the, the, the newly hatched chick, we, we assume, we know it's not quite in a, a correct assumption that the, the gut is sterile at hatch. Sure. It's not really. There are microbes present in the hatcher. There's there are microbes uh, that start to colonize. Uh, the chicks are transported. They're put into a barn, whether there's fresh litter or deep litter or uh, previous exposure um, to uh, or exposure to previous flocks. Um, there are lots of things that we can do to maybe uh, speed that along. Um, in Canada, we have a little bit different situation than the U.S. We don't use deep litter. Um, and one of the changes that's been happening in the Canadian industry is that um, historically we've always sanitized and disinfected, removed all the litter um, between each flock. And uh, more recently, the rules have changed to allow a simple water wash rather than right. sanitation, uh, full sanitation and disinfection. So even with removal of, of all the litter and a water wash, what we found was broilers placed after a water wash had less Campylobacter uh, at the end of the production cycle than uh, birds that were placed in a barn with a full sanitation. So that's an example of some, something that we can do in order to um, speed the development of a, a mature uh, microflora. Um, in the case of deep litter, obviously the environment microbiologically is much more complex. 
Um, and so we get typically a faster um, transition to a, a mature gut microflora in those cases. Hmm. So if you had a good microflora in that house for the previous flocks, you would expect to have that established quickly. Exactly. I assume the converse is true, <laughs> where if you had issues in that house... Yeah, there are cases when there are challenges to gut health that can be carried over to the next walk and then, you know, steps need to be taken. But um, in general, you know, we don't have a situation where the, the chick is able to peck around the environment that the, the mother hen uh, is located in and, and develop that gut microflora. So, um, you know, things like probiotics, things like uh, exposure to a healthy microflora from previous walks um, are ways that we can speed that along and, and provide protection by providing a more stable gut microflora more quickly. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up probiotics. There's been just a you know wide array of probiotics that have come onto the market as feed additives in the last decade or so. Um, you know, it can be kind of difficult to parse through all of the literature to make decisions on what would be the correct probiotic for a specific program. I know that's not a question that's easily answerable. But I was wondering if you have some things that you look for specifically in, you know, product literature, what signals to you, hey, this is a well-researched um, product versus one that might be a little bit more of a wild, wild west situation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. Um, so there's a couple of things that I look for. One is uh, how is it supposed to be used? How is it supposed to work? So um, often the the microbial species that are present in probiotics will remain in the gut as long as you keep feeding the, the probiotic. And when you stop feeding it, they're often not competitive to to remain in the gut. So um, persistency is one thing. Um, often they can be useful in terms of, you know, very early in life, just preventing um, whatever comes along from colonizing. Um, and, you know, particularly in terms of pathogens, of course. Uh, eventually there will be other commensal uh, microbes that come along uh, that out, might outcompete the, the probiotic. So um, the, the duration, um, how long do you need to feed it uh, for it to be effective? Uh, when do you feed it to be effective? Um, you know, early in life or after a feed disruption or an antibiotic treatment, it, it might be beneficial to, uh, again, provide a, a a layer of protection while the, the microflora reestablishes itself. Um, usually, complex is better than simple. Uh, so if you have one bacterial species, for example, uh, chances are it's going to be limited in the number of environmental niches or the proportion of the gut that can actually be colonized. And so if you've got a, a multiple uh, strain or multiple species probiotic, there tends to be a greater coverage in uh, in the ecological niches in the in the gut, um, and then in terms of looking at at uh, research papers, um, there's an awful lot of uh, well. Let me just say that that proper experimental design is critical. So too often I see papers where uh, they have a treatment where they feed antibiotics and they have a treatment where they feed probiotics. And there's no difference in performance. And so, they, so the company says our product is a replacement for antibiotics. Well, really what you need is you need a control with a disease challenge in there so that when you take antibiotics out, you confirm that there is a problem there that the antibiotics are preventing. So there is some sort of 
whether it's clinical or subclinical disease, but there's there's a loss in performance or there's some indication that uh, there's a disease process going on. And then if the probiotic actually restores the performance to the level or, of the antibiotic or partially restores, then you can make a much more confident claim or as a reader, you can be much more confident in the results that yes, this uh, this might uh, might be a, a positive um, uh, approach to uh, the removal of antibiotics, and so that's that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that um, disease challenges are often complex, uh, and so if a probiotic is effective against a particular pathogen in in the lab or in a small scale floor pen trial. Um, that's no guarantee that that probiotic is going to work. Um, so it's it's just the reality that you know you need to understand what what pathogen was that probiotic shown to be effective against, and if that pathogen is not the problem in your specific operation, well maybe that probiotic isn't the one that you should be looking at. So um, it's always a difficult transition to to go from small scale university type uh, research trials into full scale application, but you know, there is a continuum. There is a progression of going from the, the benchtop research to the small-scale pen trials to larger pen trials to, to testing it in commercial operations. Uh-huh. It can be pretty challenging to test that. It's hard to uh, simulate a disease challenge in a controlled way in the field. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned, obviously, there is some vertical transmission of different uh, microbes, not just pathogens, but also commensal bacteria from the hen. And then there's, you know, uh, pathogens coming from the environment and bacteria from the environment. I wanted to ask if there's any genetic component or epigenetic component to the immune system response. And if that has uh, been something that's influenced by selective breeding. Yeah. So there, there's certainly genetic components. Um, we have at the University of Alberta, some, uh, a number of, of uh, random bread lines uh, so we have 1957 uh, random bread broilers. They're related to the Athens Canadian random bread um, lines uh, in Georgia. Uh, we also have a 1977, uh, well, two 1977 lines, uh, a male line and a female line. Um, and all three of those lines were developed by uh, Agriculture Canada, and we've taken them over over the years. Uh, and then we have some some heritage breeds, um, light Sussex and barred Plymouth Rocks and Rhode Island Reds and so on. So we've had an opportunity to look at um, uh, some of the the differences in immune function uh, among those those different strains. And, and certainly, as we're uh, as we're selecting um, for uh, growth rate, typically we're selecting against. Uh, and I need to be careful about how I say this, we're selecting against um, the systemic effects of inflammation. So uh, I had an undergrad student do a project, and unfortunately this this never got published, but uh, what we found was that uh, the um, the modern broilers have a uh, a lower systemic inflammatory response. So if we look at mediators of inflammation, uh, they tend to produce less of the signals, the pro-inflammatory signals like interleukin-1 than the the random bred broiler lines. Now, what was interesting is when we looked at the immune cells, T cells, for example, the the T cells of the modern broilers were much more sensitive to a given level of interleukin-1 than the random bred broilers. So 
you know, I want to be careful and, and not say that, you know, the modern birds have a an impaired immune system, but, but I think that selection for growth rate has um, brought along unintended changes in the immune system. And I think that the modern birds do the same kinds of things, but they do them more efficiently from a, a, a growth standpoint. So uh, to the same challenge, they're, they're less affected by fever and um, reduced appetite and um, inefficiencies in, in uh, nutrient utilization that come along with a strong inflammatory challenge. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I've always wanted to go back and, and redo that uh, with uh, with um, the, the birds that we have now. Yeah, that would be a very interesting project. I could see how if you're selecting for, for example, feed efficiency, I mean, you probably as part of that are selecting for the birds not as expend as much energy in an immune response. Exactly. And, you know, uh, I think with the change towards um, removal of, of growth-promoting antibiotics, um, it's exposed maybe some of the limitations uh, that might be present. So, again, it's important to um, it's important to develop new strategies and new techniques. Um, I should point out that I think the primary breeders have done a really good job of, of including health um, in their selection programs and uh, both in terms of metabolic health and also uh, immunological health. Um, and I know in speaking with the geneticists for years and years and years, they have done their selection in an antibiotic-free uh, environment. So they've been, taking, they've been taking that into account. And so I think that's, you know, we still see increases in growth rate, increases in efficiency, um, even with uh, the removal of antibiotics. So I think the, the geneticists have done a good job. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They've been working very hard on trying to select on so many things, and it's hard to select on everything. <laughs> exactly. So but they, it just takes time. Job. Yeah. Um, before we kind of change gears and talk a little bit about layer nutrition, I wanted to see if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about in the uh, immune and gastrointestinal health arena. Um, just... In, in working uh, a fair bit with uh, replacements for antibiotics or alternative Perfect. strategies, um, it's really become apparent that there isn't a single magic bullet that we take antibiotics out and we put this other thing in and we can just pick up where we left off. So um, it becomes um, more challenging, I think, uh, in terms of understanding just what the problems are in a particular location or within a particular company. And and even it's not even within a particular company, it's a particular complex within that uh, particular company has a different set of needs than a different complex even in the same company. So um, talking to some some colleagues who are also uh, producers, you know, it, it's, it takes some trial and error to, to understand what are the challenges that they, they typically face, what are the products that are most likely to be effective against those specific challenges. And you have to do that on a, uh, a company by company or location by location basis. So it, it it's more challenging, but it's certainly doable. Mm -hmm. I can see that being very challenging, especially when, you know, uh, logistically things have become so centralized, especially on the feed side. As much as we would like to precision feeds some so small subpopulations of a complex who are having an issue, is just very difficult to do. Maybe we'll move back towards more smaller feed mills to do that. I don't know. Or or on-farm feed blending, something. <laughs> but, yeah, very tricky. Um, 
So on the subject of layers, I have to confess that I'm, I wouldn't consider myself to be a, a layer nutritionist by any means. I'm definitely much more broiler biased in my career and training. So you'll have to forgive me. Um, I wanted to just ask, since you were the, an expert in the area, what are the hot topics in layer nutrition right now? So I think the biggest thing is the the transition towards long layer cycles. So uh, rather than uh, uh, a forced molt um, and a second production cycle, the geneticists have done a really, again, the geneticists have done a really good job of selecting for, uh, for health, for longevity, uh, for persistency. Um, and probably most importantly, they've selected for a a much more um, or much less rapid increase in egg size as hens get older. So one of the limiting factors has always been shell quality. And as the eggs get bigger and bigger and bigger, as the hens get older and older, uh, shell quality tends to suffer. So by reducing the rate of increase in egg size, they've been able to um, breed a bird that has a good quality shell for uh, long production cycles. So you know, up to 100, I've seen 120 weeks. Uh, we just finished an experiment last, well, earlier uh, in the month um, where we had uh, a flock of laying hens go to uh, 106 weeks of age. So um, for our for our research program, that's, that's a long time to have a, a flock of laying hens. So, uh, but I think it's important because that's what industry is doing. And so we want to be able to translate our results into uh, into industry as as seamlessly as possible. How does that longer laying cycle impact the nutrition of the bird? Yeah, so um, as hens get older, typically their their efficiency of calcium uh, and phosphorus metabolism decreases. Uh, after peak production, they have a, a fairly fixed ability to deposit a uh, shell onto the eggshell. So as the eggs get bigger and bigger, with a fixed amount of shell. Uh, the shells have to get have to get thinner, so that's why that slowing the rate of increase in egg size is so important. So, one of the challenges over the years has been trying to figure out uh, optimize uh, calcium and phosphorus nutrition as the birds get older. Um, I had a, a master student who just defended, and we're working on a, a meta analysis of calcium uh, requirements and. and Probably to my surprise, uh, we found that um, there is, um, I expected to see that as as we went higher and higher in calcium uh, in laying hen diets, we might start to see some negative effects because of uh, interactions with, with phosphorus, uh, interference with um, the activity of phytase. Um, we didn't see that to the extent that I would have expected. So the hens seem to be pretty resilient as, lo as long as it's above the requirement. The, the hens seem to be pretty resilient in terms of egg production, in terms of bone health, uh, to increasing levels of calcium. And that, and that, like I said, that surprised me. Um, what we're finding, and I think is becoming clearer, is that phosphorus is probably a major player in terms of shell quality. And so um, rather than birds being deficient in phosphorus, I think it's becoming clear that typical layer diets are too high in phosphorus. Uh, and so we just published a paper uh, with Marcus Sroda-Hutzkord um, from Hohenheim University 
looking at, um, this is carrying on from a, a meta-analysis that he and a colleague had done um, where they found, based on the literature, laying hens probably don't require any more than 0.22% available phosphorus. Um, and typical diets are above 0.4. Uh, so that, that's a lot of phosphorus going into diets. Um, and then when phytase is used, uh, that liberates even more phosphorus in the gut. And what we tend to see is the formation of uh, calcium phosphorus uh, precipitates. And we actually interfere with calcium uh, absorption. So um, there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the layer industry to reduce the amount of phosphorus in the diet, reduce diet cost by reducing inorganic phosphate supplementation. Um, and if we go even lower, then we have the opportunity for phytase to become uh, effective. So uh, I think when we have high phosphorus diets, adding phytase is, is costly and it's counterproductive. Hmm. Do you think you can get away with just phytase? Uh, well, we'll we'll find out. So the the experiment that we just finished up um, from eighty to one hundred and six weeks of age, we took out all of the inorganic phosphate. So uh, the birds are still laying well. We haven't analyzed shell quality yet, uh, or we haven't run the statistics, uh, and we still have to look at bone quality. But um, in terms of production from eighty to one hundred and six weeks of age, with no additional uh, inorganic phosphate, uh, the production was was just fine. So, so what we think is, is possible is um, when we use phytase at the appropriate level, we can take, uh, we can take the inorganic phosphate out um, throughout the egg production cycle. So uh, we're working on a, a grant right now to investigate that um, all the way from day-old pullets up to 100 weeks of age. Wow. I mean, that's great research. And by the way, very applied. So you're 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 doing both. You're doing both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And so the the phosphorus is uh, you know phosphates are are limiting limiting or limited uh, the supply and and they're expensive. So uh, whatever we can do to reduce those diet costs by eliminating uh, an expensive ingredient that's really not needed, um, that's going to be good for producers. Not to mention the sustainability impact that you know phosphorus and manure is quite a troubling problem sometimes. Yeah, in a lot of regions. So. Before we wrap up, uh, is there anything else about layers that you'd like to talk about? Um, well, one of the things that I talk about uh, when I'm speaking to industry is uh, I spend a lot of time talking about pullet nutrition. So when those birds are kept for longer and longer periods of time, they're laying more and more eggs per hen, um, the pullet nutrition just becomes critical. So... Um, it's really important whether you're growing your own pullets or buying in point of lay pullets um, that they have been managed properly, they've been fed properly. And I always tell producers to start with the end in mind. So with that day old pullet, you need to have a plan for how you're going to get the bird to the point where she's ready to lay and not just ready to lay, but ready to sustain 80 to 100 weeks of egg production. That's good advice. Very helpful. It's time for our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, 
Healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. One of AB Vista's core strategies is to give customers the flexibility to do more with less, which is a common theme among many companies and producers in today's industry. As a science-driven company, AB Vista has proven results to help our customers achieve optimal performance using customized programs with our core phytase and xylanase. Well, uh, to wrap up the show, we typically ask the same three questions of all of our guests, and these are relating to resources that you would recommend to our audience. Uh, the first of which is, can you recommend a favorite book or resource related to poultry nutrition? Um, well, I, I, I think the, the Poultry Science Association website, um, and, and so the, um, uh, the, the directory, um, that's where I you know, if I'm looking to contact somebody, that's often the place I look uh, for the journals, um, for the meetings uh, that uh, poultry science puts on. And, and just over the years at the Poultry Science Association has been a great resource. And, and I use their their website a lot to um, make the connections and read the papers. And so that's uh, that's my recommendation. Absolutely. That's a great recommendation. How about a book or resource outside of your field? So this could be anything that you find personally enriching. So I'm a bird watcher. Uh, oh, so nice. there is a, a website called eBird, uh, and it's run by the Cornell uh, Lab of Ornithology. Uh, and so this um, this allows me to track the and keep uh, record the birds that I've seen. Um, it's it's a great resource. So when I go to uh, a new place and uh, to give a, a talk or, or to uh, do some consulting, uh, I often try and spend an extra day or two and, and get some bird watching in. So it helps me to scout out locations. And um, yeah, it's just really interesting from being able to, to see what you know I might expect to see and hope to see uh, at different locations when I go bird watching. Very cool. I've recently gotten into bird watching as well. It's a really fulfilling pastime. Yeah, and, and I always say that if even if it's a bad day of bird watching, it's still probably a good hike. Yeah, yeah, still get to see some birds. They may not be the birds that you came there to see, but usually yeah, you exactly. see something. Very good. And then, lastly, a more philosophical question: If you think about what makes a successful person, could you tell us about the qualities or characteristics that you think lead to success? And this could be in poultry science, in industry, in academia, or just in life in general. I, I think curiosity is one of the big ones that's that's underappreciated. And so over the years, I've had a lot of grad students and um, I've enjoyed working with each of them. Um, but I've found that, uh, you know, often the academic superstars, um, if they're not curious, are the ones that end up struggling the most, even though they're, you know, probably the smartest people. Um, but that curiosity and that willingness to to ask questions and to try and look at things from different angles and try and solve a puzzle. I think that's that's something that over the years I've learned is really important. And one of the things that I talk to prospective grad students about is, you know, what are you curious about? Or would you describe yourself as a curious person? Or, you know, what, how do you approach a new problem? And I think that curiosity and that desire to to, to learn, to, to advance Without being able to necessarily go to a book and find the answer, um, that's that's a critical characteristic, I think, in having a successful career in in science. 
It's a wonderful response. I definitely agree. I think to be curious, you have to be willing to take the risk of looking a little foolish almost to, to ask the questions without worrying what people will think about you asking the question. Yeah, that's a great yeah. way to put it. Yeah, and that is something that a lot of people struggle with, including myself sometimes. So, well, thank you so much for your time and your insight and all the wonderful research that you do. Uh, we wish you the best of luck in uh, your future uh, consulting role. Hope to see you out there. Uh, among the birds. Well, thanks for inviting me on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you, you too.